Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creative... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome back to Stages and the companion episode to our conversation with theatre titan and teacher Philip Quast. In part one, Philip provided insight to his pedagogical ponderings and expounded on his professional relationship with composer Stephen Sondheim. In part two, he defines what matters to him away from the stage and charts his incredible success in the role of Inspector Javert in Les Miserables, followed by extensive triumph on stages around the world in a vast range of work. We continue the conversation as Philip defines a restorative pursuit. Look, what do you like to do to restore yourself? Um, recharge, you know, when, when, when you're not in the theatre? Well, you probably know the answer to this. It's, you know, it's it's my, it's fishing. Uh, I've, I've just, I waited two and a half years to get my new boat, which is a bit bespoke. It's probably not politically correct to get myself a little fishing boat now. I would desperately have tried to get an electric outboard motor. I tried, but they cost a fortune so really yeah yeah so i got myself a bigger outboard motor so i can go further offshore i sold my old little tinny that i had and opted for a bigger one because i like going out on my own and it's dangerous i really do like going to sea on my own and i like the danger of it but i had a a couple of close incidents uh, a couple of years ago where I really shouldn't have been out on my own. I might have had a fall, you know, because I avoided a whale and I, I found it really hard in a rough sea to get up because I got jammed down and into the back. But I thought I've got to get a slightly bigger boat. So I've got one that's, I can't fall over. I can stand up in a bit easier uh, um, and rest and rest my knees against the uh, edge, my new knees. But I, I, I love it. I just, I just love being out there. It's, it's, it's the same as what the feeling I got when I went out into the country and when I was grew up in a kid and I get out there amongst the hills. And I find myself even going to say, I literally say, God, I love being out here. Uh, because I'm I'm quite sort of gregarious. People, you know, I I talk too much because I'm nervous. Uh, I think I'll be found out. <laughs> um, so it's a relief being out there by myself. I love being out in the elements. I always have done. Always have done. Well, they're very restorative, aren't they? Yeah, and I, I and I I like eating fish, but I can't stand eating the, any fish that's bought. Uh, I disagree with some fish that are caught, so I have a I do have a political aspect to it. I don't catch fish that aren't sustainable. 
I can't really catch a snapper or a brim because I know that a fish that's a certain size, I think, my God, how can I, that, that thing has lived for 20 years. I can't, literally can't eat that. So I tend to eat the fish that live, live for, that are uh, a legal size when they're a year old, you know, the, the tailor and the mullets and the, and the oily fish, you know, the fish. I, I, I like the ones that are sustainable. I don't like salmon farmed fish, Ugh, you know. I just. There's a difference in the taste, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I know it's been well looked after. And I dispatch of them humanely. I bleed them, ice them, and I can taste the difference. And there's nothing nicer than fresh fish and fish that's well been well looked after. Mm. I love calamari fishing, squid fishing. And I have to tell you, it's no different to working on a Sondheim text or a Shakespeare text. In what way? Well, you've got to you've got to think like a fish. You've got to you've got to use your powers of observation. I love that. I mean, I've got to. People say I'm lucky, and I do. I, I'm really good at it. But it's not because I put in the hours. I have to say, but. I, I know what I look at the tides, I look at the moon, I, I look at the weather conditions, the water temperature. It becomes a little game of chess. And I go, I, I'm looking around for where the birds are feeding, uh, what time of year it is, seasonal. I try and look it up. I, I look at the conditions and go, oh, oh, there's a little eddy over there, or I'll see, I'll see a pelican over there, and I'll go, oh. Oh, it's feeding the bait fish are there, and I'll know a flathead will be right there. And then literally, I'll go over and go boom, and I'll get two flatheads straight away, instantly. And it's that's to do with observation, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Absolutely, absolutely. In the middle of my lifetime, I began to lose my way between this, that, and the other of a crowded resume. Then I stumbled on a memory Out upon the shifting sands For one simple, honest moment I could see my father's hands They were strong, they were rough They would lift me high So I could count the stars When the world was not enough They would reach for each day and the feel of home was just a touch away in my father's hand how could he have seemed so foolish back when i thought i was wise guess you come to see things different looking through your father's eyes now that I've become a father, I begin to understand all the lessons that are waiting right there in our father's hands. They were strong, they were rough, they would lift me high so I could count the stars when the world was not enough. They would reach for each day and the feel of home was just a touch away in my father's hand 
weathered lines, storied scars, tell who he was and who you are. Were your parents uh, happy about a career in the arts for their boy? Oh, yeah. Look, my mum was one of those slightly pro-am things. You know, she always wanted to sing. We had a pianola. Um, my dad was really proud of me. Uh, I embarrassed my sister for a little while because I should go, oh, you're Philip Cross's sister, <laughs> uh, especially when I was, especially as she was a school teacher and a primary school head teacher and play school was such a big part of that life. <laughs> Um, you know, all the peers would say, oh, your brother's, you know, all that sort of stuff. But uh, we reconciled that. My sister and I are great friends and great mates, and she got past that. Uh, look, yeah, I think they were. I I, I, I was always wary of you. I'm so wary of parents. They never pushed. They were proud, but I wouldn't let them be proud because I get embarrassed if they boast, you know. Mm. There's nothing worse than a parent. You know, when I was younger and I'd hear mum sort of, I'd go, mum, stop it, you know. Uh, I hated any form of stage parent whatsoever. They were nervous at first, but I think my career changed them. They they were conservatives. They grew up in, they brought me up as a country party voter. And I think I brought friends home who were gay, who were from different lifestyles, who swore, who drank, and I think it changed their outlook on life. They became so much more open people and accepting of uh, accepting of people. Well, it's a process it's of education, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's just learning about the world, and um, yeah, because because some some people can live in a very insular world. Well, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I even, I, when I was in a commercial show, I flew them to England when I did the Secret Garden there to see it because I could afford to fly them. They couldn't have afforded to go. I flew them over for a Vita and, you know, they, they thought it was, they boasted their friends, of course, Phil's flying us over, and but I was able to afford to fly them and they wouldn't have gone there. Mm. I was able to afford to fly them over and they literally wouldn't have gone and, seen Scotland and seen those places if I hadn't been working there. So I was pleased from that point of view. You graduated NIDA in 1979. Is it, is it, uh, how does it feel being back there on, on, on campus uh, all these well, years it's later? Complete, it's not the same school. We were in the fibro shacks up the hill and, uh, and none of that's there, of course, except uh, I don't know what's happening to the what's now the Fig Tree Theatre. The old totus, the old tote's still there and the, the White House is still there. I think they're administration buildings. But I don't know what's happened to the corrugated fig tree. I, I gather it's been condemned. I'm just wondering whether that's part the university has let it go so that it'll have to be pulled down because that land is worth a lot of money. But I took some students up there three years ago before it was closed down and said, come and have a look at this theatre where, you know, Mel Gibson and all those people and Judy and Hugo and we, where we all were Linny Cropper and where we'd all studied. And uh, we sat in that little theatre and they loved it. it was, it's a beautiful little theatre. Yeah. Um, they loved it. And they got up on the stage and they were, they were thrilled by it. 
Um, I don't know what's happened to it now. I really don't. Could you feel but the ghosts of the past? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's a shame. I mean, I love all those theatres in London and the same at the National. Uh, they have a tradition of you writing your names inside the drawers and underneath the tables. And uh, Bruce Spence was doing, what's it called? Not, not uh, What's his name? River? Secret River. Sorry. Yeah, yeah Mystic River. Um, similar. But uh, he was doing Secret River. And I got a text one day saying, um, Colin Moody and I have just found your name. And here they'd photographed my name in the drawer. And when I was at the RSC, I mean, I looked under it and there's Ralph Richardson and Lawrence Olivia and I'm sitting at the table where they'd sat and Judy Dench had signed it. Uh, I don't think they do it here, but there's something wonderful about that carving your name in it to say you were there. And uh, our theatres, of course, aren't old. We've pulled them all down. But, look, I, I, I'm so devoted to NIDA because I, I, uh, I believe in lineage. I was so lucky to have gone to the RSC when Sis Berry still taught classes. And I had a little private classes with her once a week for an hour and a half. And and she helped, she changed so many actors' lives. You know, Penny Downey, a great Australian actress, you know, she made Penny the great classical actor that she is, Sis. And I, it was hard for me being at the RSC because I spoke with an Australian accent and I was trying to sound the English and, but look, it eventually it, it sort of came around where I didn't care how I sounded because partly because it's theater and film and everything's become so global and, and an American accent is not an American accent anymore. It's been so influenced by English actors, but to have sonnet classes with, with John Barton, Oh, I mean, wow. unbelievable. I, yeah. I, I was I was so lucky. And and the reason I'm devoted to teach to teaching is because I, I don't want to pass on what I know. I want to pass on what they knew. It's uh You're the link. Yeah. And mm. each one each one will become the link because it will get lost. I don't know quite how Shakespeare will survive. I I don't because of the exponential loss of language. Uh, kids don't look up a dictionary anymore because if you go straight to a phone to look up a word, predictive text finds the word for you before you've actually gone through the process of licking your finger and counting through the alphabet. So when you land on that word, it, it goes thump into your brain because it has a kinesthetic contact, a mm. uh, point of discovery. But if you text it and it comes up, you've been through, it's already got onto it before you've even gone through any kinesthetic process. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, uh, and language has always changed. Um, spelling has become shocking. Grammar has become shocking. <laughs> I'm not sure whether that's a good or bad thing. Maybe we're going back to what it was in Elizabethan times where um most people couldn't write and read and they 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 learned songs and in a day and you know they things were passed on verbally i don't know i don't i really don't know you can't just, sound old fashioned no you don't sound old fashioned at all <laughs> <laughs> the cut, cutting your teeth uh leaving nida was certainly that wonderful apprenticeship you had at the south australian theater company in uh, in the 80s now was that under the reign of uh, george ogilvy was he there then or was it Jim no, no, it was or... Colin. It was Colin George at that stage, and I, I'd met Colin George 
three years before he'd, he'd I'd gone left school and then gone to New England University and Colin George had come over from Sheffield to start the drama school there the the, the Bachelor of Arts uh, well it wasn't wasn't specializing it as such but he built a little theater up there a little uh, they made turn one of the lecture halls or outhouses into a little theater and he was only there for a year and then got the job at the South Australian Theatre Company. So he had to pay his way out of the contract at, ANU, at uh, UNE. And, uh, but he did set up the department. And I went up there from school in the uh, orientation week and there was this little man, this man with a couple of Greek masks sitting there and that had drama on it. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'll go up and speak to him. And he had a beard and he looked like my dad a bit. And, and we started chatting and he said, why don't you come and join the drama course? So as part of my bachelor BA and I was doing English and geography or something. And I started drama. And towards the end of that year, he said, look, why didn't you come to South Australia with me? And I thought, whoa, you know, and I was going to join the company. But then he went to NIDA to audition young actors for the for to go over to South Australia. And that was the year he took Michael Saberi, Chrissy Marnie, Colin Friels, Mel Gibson, Judy Davis, uh, a whole heap of people. And then he realised that I really wasn't up to their level. So he said, why don't you try and go to NIDA? And, but I had to get in. But we'd done a series of plays up there and um, some actors came up and Kit Taylor, uh, Maggie Kirkpatrick, and I worked as an actor on those plays with them. And they wrote to Aubrey Miller and said, look, I think you should see this person. So I still had to get in and I got into NIDA and then that's what happened. And at the end of my three years of NIDA, Colin said, why don't you come over and join? And I went over with with Sue Lyons, Simon Burville Holmes, and James Laurie, the wonderful James Laurie, out of that year, and we went over and joined the company. And then I was there for two years. I think I did about 20 plays in two years. We were in rep. And I got to watch all those wonderful actors, including Teddy Hodgman, you know, who was a superb actor, Dennis Olsen. They were all there, and we had to understudy at times. And uh, you would rehearse for four weeks and perform at night, and we'd be rehearsing the next one in the in the day. And when you get to watch, that's how you learn. Well, that's right. The training institution gives you a foundation, but it's not until you're on the job that you you do most of your learning, is it? And you continue to learn. Well, yeah, and it's not continuous now. I mean, rep companies are extraordinary because you do learn to see bad habits in old actors, but you also learn to see them solve problems. Gosh, I remember, I remember being in Three Sisters once as a soldier marching across the back and Kevin Miles was playing Chibutican or Chepatican and I was doing a little bit extra up the back and Kevin Miles stamped his foot and said, screamed out, is he going to be doing that while I'm doing my speech? And I realised that, you know, you learn very quickly that you're told, don't you do that when I'm doing this, it's not my turn. Yeah. It is the sad thing. You know, I find myself teaching, demonstrating. Um, I shouldn't. Uh, and it's partly because um, they haven't got the language. I say, listen, we're indicating a little bit more. Don't do that. Uh, and 
But the part I tend to demonstrate is to get up and show the physicality because walking and talking at the same time is a real challenge. Yeah. Again, because spatial awareness, again, because of mobile phones, uh, and being, and if you, you've only got to walk down the street to realize there's no spatial awareness anymore because everyone's walking and bumping into each other because the head's down. And on stage, you, you, you learn very quickly if there's a, a, an action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. If someone moves here, then you counter. Uh, so I have to explain a lot of that craft because it's not natural now for people to respond physically around them when there's movement. Spatial awareness. Spatial awareness is a, yeah, is a yeah. real problem. Yeah. So I have to demonstrate physically a lot of the time. Uh, the dropping of lines, again, is hard because kapomp, the dropping of thought because texting means you text and then you stop thinking. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, it's a challenge. Out in the darkness a fugitive running, fallen from God, fallen from grace. God be my witness, I never shall yield till we come face to face, till we come face to face. He knows his way in the dark. Mine is the way of the Lord. Those who follow the path of the righteous shall have their reward. And if they fall as Lucifer fell, the flame, the sword. Stars in your multitudes Yes, to be counted, filling the darkness with order and light. You are the sentinels, silent and sure, keeping watch in the night, keeping watch in the night. You know your place in the sky. You hold your course and your aim And each in your season returns and returns And is always the same And if you fall as Lucifer fell You fall in flames And so it must be For so it is written on the door those who falter and those who fall must pay the price. Lord, let me find him that I may see him safe behind bars. I will never rest.
any conversation with you would not be complete without an investigation of Javert in Les Miserables, the, the role yeah. that really brought you to the fore and, and, and to the world's eye. Um, mm. Tell me about that audition for that original Australian production. Do, you, you went along hoping to get into the chorus, I, I, I read. Okay, look, I didn't know anything about it because I, I just wasn't a musical person, but people had seen it. I remember at the same time, uh, I remember John Ewing auditioning for Javert because he desperately wanted to play it. And, of course, when I got it, he said, darling, you're completely wrong for it. And I suspect I was at that stage as he knew me. Uh, I, I didn't know anything about it. I really, really didn't. You know, I, I'd never really heard of Sondheim, really, even though I'd sung some of his lyrics in Candide. I, I, hadn't, I didn't know who he was until I was, I was doing Les Mis in London and I asked to do Sunday in the Park with George. So, look, there I was doing auditioning for this part, this thing, this musical, and um, with Cameron McIntosh, not knowing that Cameron had actually seen me as Candide. Right. And 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 quite enjoyed the production. So that seed was planted there, although it's a completely different voice. Uh, and then uh, so I turned up. I mean, it's a famous story now, and I didn't know. And we all had to sing at this cattle call, Do You Hear the People Sing? And Michael Tyack was playing the auditions, uh, the lovely Michael. Uh, and I literally... <laughs> Uh, and there's this very high note in it, and I didn't. So I went, do you hear the people sing? sing there's the music of the pin on the And I did this little light sleeves again, beating of our heart. And I went, oh, God, I was so embarrassed. And I didn't know who Cameron McIntosh was. And there was John Robbo and James Thane and Cameron McIntosh and Jean-Claude Michel and um, Sean Berg and Alan Babiel all sitting in this line. I'd never even seen a lineup of people like that before. It was all very posh. And so I, I cracked on this note and I was really embarrassed. And then I, so I said, I'm terribly sorry. I'm going to sing again and I'll give it another go. And I tried and I cracked on it again. And Cam I remember Cameron laughing. Uh, very cruelly. <laughs> and and then I looked over to Michael Tyke and he said, and I went over and I said, I'm sorry, Michael. Uh, he said, don't worry, everyone's having trouble. Uh, of course, you know you wouldn't get the role now, Peter, because now when you audition, no, no, you wouldn't get it because now you wouldn't you wouldn't get it because now there's so little rehearsal times. Those people that are doing these embedded musicals now require you to go. Bang. They, that was the days when they could smell an actor or an, a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. You can get that. They wouldn't care. No, no, you've got it. You've got to do it right now because there's no yeah. time. And you have to do the performance in the, in the, at the audition. So anyway, um, I went to go to it again and I got, heart, got to know before I cracked, I just thought, I just thought this is going to happen again. I can't stand it. I went over and grabbed my music that I had. I grabbed it off the piano. And I walked out and I looked at them all and I said, so fucking embarrassed. If you wanted to hear how high I could fucking sing, you should have got me to sing fucking scales and walked out the door. And Cameron says that I turned so viciously. They all looked at each other and went, Javert. <laughs> so... It's true. I came back and then they ran out and said, came back in, come back in. 
So I came over and Claude Michel sat down by the piano and he said, do you know stars? And I remember saying really clear, don't fucking know anything. And he said, well, it goes like this. There, out in the darkness. So he said, can you sing that? And I went, there, out in the darkness. I literally mimicked him. And he said, are you French? I swear. And I went, no. He said, well, you're behaving like a Frenchman. <laughs> and he, they, said, they said, take it away and learn it and come back. I still, when I came back, hadn't hadn't uh, listened to any of the music. I did hadn't read the book at that stage. When I came back to re-audition, Trevor was there, and I'd been doing a film called First Kangaroos, and I'd done this really rare fracture in my foot, and I was in plaster, I had my leg in plaster. And uh, Trevor was there, and I wanted to go to Antarctica on the Naladan as a cooker. That's what I was desperate to do. And this, and then I auditioned. And then Trevor just was like no human being I'd ever, ever met. He just was calm, quiet. He came over and I, I, I learned, I sang Stars and he talked to me about it. And then I, and he said, just, can you just speak it a little bit? And he talked and then he, he, and then I sang it again. And then he said, that's good. Now, maybe could you do this again with it? And he just gave me a bit of direction. And then I sang it again. He gave me time and they were all there. And then he looked at me and he said, you're very young. Can I just, just say, so looked around and he said, look, has someone got a coat? And then he draped a coat over my shoulders and he said, can you just, and then he gave me something in my hand because that was the baton, a water bottle, I think, um, because he knew that an actor needs something in their hands or a prop or something. Otherwise, he's just standing there, not know. And I had a water bottle and this coat. And then I sang it again. And he came up to me and he put his arm around me quietly and he said, uh, okay, I'll see you in rehearsals at... He made the decision before he told anyone else, I'll see you on the first day of rehearsals. He quietly said that. Wow. At the end of the rehearsal, at the end of the audition, before he discussed it with anyone else. He knew so what he that, wanted. Well, he'd just seen if he could work. And, and, of course, that stayed with me for the rest of my life, really, because I've treated most rehearsals uh, as, an, as not an audition but as a rehearsal. And it can come over very arrogant. But I'm trying to show the director how I can work and to test them as well to see if we can work together. Uh, when even Follies, they said, can you send a Zoom? Can you send a, a tape over to Dominic? And I went, no, I, I don't. So I paid for my own flight over and turned up and they said, and I had to literally fly, go in one day, do it and fly back the next day. I was so busy. And they, they couldn't believe that. Dominic thought that was great. So he gave me time and we worked. He just, we worked and we had fun because we wanted to see if we could work together. And he has to know whether or not he can direct me. And I have to know whether or not we can You want collaborate. to be directed, yeah. No, no it's, it's how you collaborate. That's basically it. So I wouldn't arrogantly think that I could play a part. How would I know until the director invests in you and says, yes, you can. And if they invest in you, you'll give them everything, everything. You'll do anything they say because they've invested in you. And that's when the collaboration starts, it feels to me. 
It's often said that um, Valjean's "Bring Him Home" is 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 likened to a prayer. Um, Javert has has stars, which is, I, I think, the equivalent for, for that character. It's a a spiritual. Well, it is a prayer, and it's funny how people don't treat it as a prayer, but it's a vow. It's but uh, and of course, the, the longer you live, the more connections you make. I then went to the RSC later on, and of course, I played Banquo to Roger Allen's Macbeth, and Roger was the original. Javert. And um, and so, you know, we be, we're very, 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 very good friends now. But uh, uh, you can feel, I could feel those classical actors' influence on the piece because Les Mis came out of Trev what Trevor and John had done with Nicholas Nickleby. They got all those actors to improvise and that's exactly the process. They got good singing actors. You know, Paddy Laplone is a really good actor. And, and of course, Colm was um, a wonderful singer. But uh, you then learn about how I, I then got to learn about how Roger came up with uh, stars because when they started running it, Roger said, I haven't got a song. And it wasn't that he needed a song. He needed a soliloquy. He knew as a classical Shakespearean actor that at that moment you needed to know what he was thinking. And that's how the, that's how, uh, that's how uh, the stars came about. And of course, the prayer, I think, came, no, yeah, the prayer came afterwards. Uh, although I no longer call it the prayer, I call wake him up because it, through Chinese whispers, it's become such a, a loud song. When I got to do the 10th anniversary concert with Colm at the Albert Hall, uh, when you hear Colm sing, he makes it sound like it's loud. If I die, Lord, it's so quiet. But he played it in this way that um, it, it was the prayer because the realistic thing is if you sing it too loud, you wake everyone up in the barricade. Mm, true, true. But when yeah. I've seen it now, people, it's turned into this thing where people scream and it loses the reality for me. Because you go, why isn't everyone waking up and saying, who's making all that fucking noise? Okay. You know? <laughs> but Colm sang it so delicately. But now people just now, it's become this iconic song that people clap at when they sing it the voice and you scream it. It was never meant to be like that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, but, yeah, that's as far as I understand, uh, the stars came first and then, then, they, then it, they were working out balancing and then the prayer comes and they went away and just, you know, came back in one day and Kolb sang it and that's how they shaped it. A lot of the actors put in, look, I need to say this here. And Roger, thankfully, said uh, that's what he needed because he had a sense of it. I was um, pleased actually, to become his friend and learn that. It's humbling. Philip, can you talk me through the performance of stars as an actor? What what was your approach? How did how did you play that soliloquy? It's well, it's well documented, and I'm not sure what Trevor actually told me now. Whether or not it's just become a sort of thing in my head that he told me things, and then I, I've just I don't know what I did and what he did. If there's a thing on behind the red curtain on YouTube where I go through the whole song. But I wasn't allowed to sing Stars or The Suicide for weeks and weeks and weeks. We never got to sing it. I would have separate music calls. That's the way Trevor worked. And I still do that. I don't want to sing the song too early. 
um, even in Sondheim and people, and that can be hard because people go, but I've got to try and work out how those lyrics work because the best songs, the lyrics comes, come first and then it's different with stars because, you know, they're often translations of something else that was there, although I think that was written in English first, I have to say. Um, uh, I think Herbie Kretzmer did it first before um, Alain had written any French version of it. I may be wrong. Uh, but I remember the stars literally just speaking the lyrics and sitting there and I'd go there and Trevor would say, where? Out in the darkness. And I've continued that on in my teaching. You've got to hang on to one thought till the next one comes in and then try and work out how that works with the music. And that's all acting is really, is interrupted thought. Sometimes it's spoken thought. Sometimes I'm speaking and I'm interrupted by a silent thought. And the challenge for me is to be so musically accurate. It's a bit technical, but then when I do it all, I can throw it all away. But Trevor went there, where? And I'd go, out in the darkness. What about it? He'd say. And i go, a fugitive running. A what running? And he'd say, I'd say, a fugitive. And you'd have to look. You've got, it's not an accident word. If you just go, a fugitive running. Before you can say the word fugitive, you've got You've got to coin it. Why does he use a word? Trevor didn't do that. This is my what I've learned since then, in retrospect, what he's doing. Why do I say fugitive? Of course, it's based on the whole of the show and the movie. The fugitive is based on Les Miserables. And I go, oh. So Herbie Kretzmer's probably put a little joke there. Yeah. A fugitive running. And he's running. What is it running, falling, fallen? So you've got running, fallen from God. And when is someone fallen? Then you start, you start thinking Lucifer, and then you. So you've just got to take your time with it, and that's what Trevor did. And I, and and if we never rushed, and I'd have to suffer the embarrassment of standing up and speaking these lyrics slowly, not in rhythm of the music. And what it forced you to do is literally find the truth of finding the word. And so often now, singers go through the process of mimicking the song and learning it, and I have to go through everything and unlearn it again because there's not a thought in their head because the music has driven them on too fast for them to go through the process of joining the words with the music. In other words, uh, to try and somehow literally replicate the process the composer and the lyricist or whichever way went through when they did it. The repercussions about that is that if you don't take the time, you don't make those connections between, you know, uh, you need to allow yourself time to understand that that song and the suicide is all about light and dark. He knows his way in the dark. Mine is the way of the Lord. So you've got antithesis between dark and mm. Lord, and then that, that pays off in the suicide. And, of course, those two men uh, are, 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 are alter egos. Valjean starts to die once Javert dies because one sort of can't exist without the other, you know, and, and light and dark can't exist without each other. 
you know it's so it's it's quite an it, it comes down to what's on if i don't put that word sorry if i don't put that work into my work i don't think i'm actually honoring the amount of time that Stephen or something put into those lyrics because it was painful a lot of the time it was really tough i mean he's actually had to sit there and work it out i have a responsibility to honor the amount of sweat and blood and divorces and breakups of people's lives that went into that because it's not easy it's a really complicated art form I love the knowledge, um, which demonstrates the capacity of the actor. That, uh, that probably the first two actors to play Javert, yourself and Roger Allen, played Banquo and Macbeth. But you also met up again in Le Cage aux Folles, playing oh. husband and wife, husband and husband. I beg your pardon. Yeah, husband and husband. Well, husband and wife. He would have been a wife then. Look, I we had the best time because I'd done it already at the Chocolate Factory. And then I didn't go on to do it in the West End, but then I came back. The opening came in the season, and look, it was just bliss. We laughed. We had a great time. His kids came and saw him, and we, because Rogers, Rogers, an extraordinary actor. I mean, I learned so much off him. He's got this incredible voice, this speaking voice. Uh, but God, we laughed, and we had so many fantastic times. Uh, and of course. Roger had knows all these people, so he it was a constant flow of people coming in to see him, you know, play the role. So, you know, the names dropping could start forever. Uh, Ian McKellen even came in and brought 70 gay dignitaries for his 70th <laughs> birthday. He had the night of his 70th birthday at La Caja Fall. Brilliant. It was a tremendous, yeah, yeah. And Roger paid for the champagne and I baked a birthday cake and Armistead Mopan came in as well with his husband and it was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time, a real celebration. Yeah, we were a wonderful couple, uh, I have to say, yeah. Um, those golden age of musicals, um, you also did South Pacific. Um, yeah. Would you have liked to have done more from, from that period, the, the musicals of the, uh, the I 50- suppose the... Yeah, I suppose the one, I don't have regrets. There was a chance to do it, but Carousel is a really interesting one. It's probably my favourite musical because uh, I grew up with it and I was in love with Shirley Jones on that cover. I used to take it to bed. Um, oh, look, I've got it here, actually, I think. Look, oh, look at it. Oh, there it is, just just within reach. Beautiful. It's a beautiful it piece, isn't here it? On beautiful my film. I don't know why. It's beautiful. I loved his voice. And I have to say... Um, Gordon McRae, that's probably uh, how I started to sing because I used to try and being out there in the open, I used to try and sound like him. I wonder what he'll think of me. I try and sound, and I mimicked him in a way. And I tried to, because I thought, oh, that's, and it started to feel good. And because I could make all that noise, that out there with, with that out in the country and out in the air and nowhere, because I make, I could make all that noise out there in the open, I felt free enough to be able to make mistakes and not feel embarrassed, which I have to say is the challenge for all the younger people now because they've got nowhere to practice. They can't go to the park anymore. They all say this. They can't go to the park and practice and scream because someone will film them and they'll be on 
on a video somewhere or on Facebook, look at this lunatic practicing their lines. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it's really hard for them to actually use their instrument. But I, um, yeah, I loved Carousel and probably it's one part I would have liked to have done. There was an opportunity sort of where I auditioned for it for the national and didn't get it. It was a pretty traumatic audition, if I, uh, but I'm not going to go into that because uh, <laughs> I've since made friends with the person who made it traumatic. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't right for it in their, uh, in their mind, but, uh, and it's gone. I'll, also, I have no regrets, huh? but I, I love the piece because I, I think that bench scene changed musical theatre. Oh, yes, it's, it's like a 20-minute scene, isn't it, that, that uh, relationship between Billy and, um, and Julie? Uh, it's everything. Sung dialogue. It's just, it takes off. Music comes in, out. It's everything that Shakespeare could ever be or Beckett could ever be. It's, mm. it, changed the, it changed it. Tunes come happen. You've never heard them before. And they come out and they speak. And they, it's wonderful. Extraordinary. Mm. Yeah. I'm sure you're like me. We had those Sunday afternoon uh, movie musicals uh, on TV growing up. So you had people like Gordon McRae that you would see uh, as a leading well, man. No, uh, John no. Wright, um, Howard Keel. You didn't uh, have that? Well, no, no, because where I grew up, we didn't really have television because we'd got no reception. So all I had was that picture. Uh, and then uh, uh, it wasn't until much later, till I was a, uh, a teenager, that I got to see the the movie of Carousel. But no, I didn't see those movies at a young age because our television was black and white, <laughs> and we had to have cellophane over over it to see the images because of where we were on the farm and you know the hills. We didn't get reception, so you know it basically. It didn't improve in the time that we got Rin Tin Tin until much, much later. Uh, but um, so I used to just sit there and look at the cover. So what was the artistic uh, influences in your chart? You, there was obviously no cinema uh, opportunities that you could go off to the flicks or? Um, no, those roles on the pianola. Yeah. No, we had the pianola. You pedal them, and because you know the words were there, and you could see the words rolled up, and 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 records, records, My Fair Lady, and and South Pacific, and Carousel, and they were the one. They were the songs that my father wooed my mother to. You know, Dad wooed my mother to some enchanted evening, and we had that on on the on the pianola roll. Some enchanted evening. You may see a stranger You may see a stranger Across a crowded room And somehow you know You know even then That somewhere you'll see her Again and again Some enchanted evening Someone may be laughing You may hear her laughing Across a crowded room And night after night As strange as it seems The sound of her laughter 
could sing those and I knew it and it's interesting because my kids are, are really influenced by uh, uh, I remember Rodriguez you know that the singer Rodriguez that disappeared you know and f finding uh, what's the music the documentary that that they brought out recently anyway uh, the kids love all my music <laughs> in a way but uh, Nat King Cole that was my parents stuff uh, so I loved all those singers, Ella Fitzgerald, really, really wonderful, wonderful singers. I so that was my influence was the was the putting on the LPs. You had yeah. an opportunity to create a role rather than assume a role that somebody else had done with a musical called The Fix, which oh, I, uh, I was obsessed with for a while. I'd, I'd play it constantly, but um, fabulous sort them. of political thriller, black comedy. And it should have been a success, but it was just before Tony Blair got elected. No one was, everyone was hopeful for a change of the future. So it was before the Iraq war and, and having that amount of cynicism in, because it was American writers in English uh, politics at the time just didn't happen. It just mistimed. Of course, it it, it, it probably worked now, absolutely worked now because the amount of, uh, I don't want to say corruption because that's a little unfair, but pork barreling, there's all those songs in it. But I don't know whether I'd actually be allowed to play the role now, Peter, or whether it could be written because I played I played someone in calipers with uh, crutches who was had polio. I started and I was gay. But even if a gay person played it now, how could they play it having... Uh, in being in polio, having had polio, you know. Uh, the irony is I, I, in order to do my research, I went to see a man who had polio to see how he moved. And he was thrilled that a person with polio was going to be portrayed on stage. He was thrilled for me. And while I was there, I said, how do you get out of your chair? Anyway, he, he, got a, he tried to get out and he fell. And I went to help him and he went, no, 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 stay there. So I... Uh, I watched him, and I am not kidding. It took him nearly ten minutes to get off the floor, up, and I and he would he I ceased to exist in the room. He eventually got out, and he crawled up into this chair, and he sat there in this ball of sweat. He went, well, I did it, but he he was so determined. So I went into the rehearsals the next day, and I said to Sam Mendes, Sam, and I said, Sam, this is what happened. He said, Oh well, let's try and put it in the show. And the guy with polio was just thrilled. He was thrilled that I put it in. Uh, he was so proud. But, uh, you know, it's got really difficult politically now how you do it. But I loved it. It was a killer to perform physically. And it would have gone to being part of one of those shows that put terrible stress on my knees because I, I was bent over and twisted and my knees were twisted. And I did. And if you open, that's that opening of that second act, I do that, uh, there's a whole thing of, um, 
um, uh, where, you know, it's an up-tempo opening number. And then I go into a song called First Came Mercy. And I think the whole thing, Two Guys at Harvard, I think, opens the second act. And I do this whole dance routine on crutches, which is sick. I'm referred to as the Crip. And I have to say I'm Cripple, yep. which you're not allowed yep. to use now. And, uh, you know, and I was called the Lame. One, do, one, one you know, <laughs> uh, my brother was very, very cruel on what he called me. But I just, I don't know how you do it now. But um, it killed me physically, absolutely. That whole section is about nine or ten minutes non-stop singing. And you don't get that on stage very often these days. No. no. That, th that through song. And, um, and Sam is hysterically funny. Sam Mendes was so funny. He's he's brilliant. It was before he became the Sam Mendes that we now know, but he was already a huge success at the Donmar and had taken shows to Broadway, of course. But uh, he's very funny in the rehearsal room. And a, and a photographic memory for old movies. He, he used to do whole routines of the Three Stooges, which Mel Gibson can do, incidentally, yeah. Wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Philip, are you superstitious in the in the theatre? Do you well, follow all of those? Not really. I get a bit funny about saying, you know, I, Maccas, and only because, you know, I'm around. I do get a bit strange about it because of people's reactions. No, I used to be... I used to have routines. I like the same. I was listening to Geraldine the other day, getting in there early. You know, I sort of do go in early. I do like to go on the stage before the show. You all get to do that now anyway, because part of the new HR rules is making sure that you have compulsory warm-ups because they have a duty of care, so you all have to get on stage. I love a moment on stage by myself to say, yep, okay, be brave, don't be frightened, come out here. You can do it. Uh, I like I do like Geraldine said the other day. I like to think of the people that have been on this stage before me and the responsibility that holds. I try to own the space. I look up. I make sure my eye lines right. I like to say a couple of lines. You know, a lot of lines from the show just to ping them out and then go out and go off and then come back on and go. I've never done this before to try and make it fresh. I I don't spend any time in makeup at all because I don't generally wear it, so it's just boom, 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 put a little bit of um, mascara on and take it off, <laughs> if that makes sense. Hardly any eyeliner, don't do that. So the one routine I have is not get, not to get to dress till the last minute. You have to often put radio mics on early. Yep. Uh, so I try and uh, I sit around in my undies for a while, and then when it almost gets to beginners, go, you know, when we did uh, Waiting for Godot, uh, you get a little routine. I remember I'd go past, as we got out for beginners, I'd go past Richard and Hugo and they would always be there in a line and we'd salute and I'd clip my fingers and we'd go, every night, and you just do that routine. And it, it's not superstition. It's just, it's just like, right, here we go. <laughs> Uh, you all check in with each other. There's a there's a communal connection because you're all telling the same I like story. To. I like to. You you know it's it's very important to. Um, I love. I should, I haven't shared dressing rooms for a while. Peter, of course, of heard. course. <laughs> but I was again. I was thrilled to be back doing Death of a Sale and sharing a, a dressing room with with um, 
Bruce Spence because we had been in a couple of shows together before and I loved it. These two old cranky fellows, you know, trying to learn how to do cryptic crosswords because we'd never learned to do them and there we were trying and cheating and trying to get our brains around that both being extremely nervous as we've got older because we're aware that it can get up and bite you in a half a second, uh, politically aligned, telling yarns and stories, laughing. Uh, I love that camaraderie. And, again, it feels, exact, it feels exactly like it did growing up on the farm where you would get up as a team and you work and uh, a teamwork. I love the teamwork. I love the teamwork. It's just, it's, it's wonderful. You're about to join another another team very soon in in Adelaide with the uh, the Cabaret yeah. Festival and um, Moments in the Woods, the Songs and Stories of Sondheim, part of the Adelaide Cabaret Festival at Majesty's, Majesty's Theatre on Thursday, June twenty third. So Adelaide are very fortunate indeed. Yep, and I'm looking forward to the rehearsal period. As I said, we haven't we haven't necessarily I don't necessarily know what we're going to. Uh, do now with um, Mitchell and has been talking about ideas and what you'd like to do and things that you might like to that you've sung before and things that uh, we possibly could do because you know there are certain all different voices it'll be great to work with uh, Geraldine again because we haven't worked together since Into the Woods which is a long time ago uh, so it'll be lovely it'll be great to work with Mitchell I've never worked with him, although I'm a huge admirer, uh, and Queenie, who I have worked with in a concert version of Follies. So that'll be just, that'll be lovely. Uh, and I like being in Adelaide. It'll be great to catch up with some old friends and Sondheim aficionados like Michael Morley will no doubt be there. And, uh, yeah, it, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And it's a little band and... Uh, and just touching base with those songs that can get up and bite you in a, in a half a second. Uh, it'll be emotional because for me, uh, it's funny going to be, it is still strange talking about him in the past tense. I'm not one of those people that go, oh, God, Stephen's gone, because it's not separate from life, of course. You know, he, he doesn't live forever, and nor do I say would he want to. He's already, he's, I think, Part of me, I said this the other day, part of me thinks he's probably relieved he's gone. He's confident that his work will keep, will keep will live on forever. He doesn't have to worry. That's what I said about he didn't mind towards the end. He knew he knew his work would would outlive any bad versions of it, <laughs> that it would survive. Uh, but I think he was such a, a teacher and that he did so much teaching towards then he's confident that he has passed the ball on because I know that he was getting a little distressed that there was no one to take over. Mm. And that's why I think he was rather relieved. He told me when he saw uh, Floyd Collins and Adam Gettle had written the riddle song, Stephen thought, ah, oh, at last, because someone wasn't copying. And he saw something that, that was had moved on from him, and then of course he said he had to go and get the music, and they have a connection as well. He had to go and try and work out how he did it, and uh, and that was partly a relief for him. 
because I did ask him once. I, I went and visited him in New York, and I said, you know, to try and get him to write me a new song. Of course, he he wouldn't, because uh, he can't write stuff out of context. He th- said, I just I can't. It's just too hard because he needs to know the character. But I got some other ideas off him of what I could do. But he said, um, I said, do you still enjoy it? And he sort of shrugged and went, mm. Mm. he said. Do you find it hard? He went, mm. And then he confessed that he didn't find it hard anymore because he knew how to do it. And then you go, oh, because what he wanted was the puzzle. You know, we knew he was a puzzle smith. He wanted, he liked the challenge of working it out, but in the end it became a bit easy because he could just do it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? He knew how to. Yeah. He knew how to. He'd done that Rubik's cube so many times. He just <laughs> knew how to do it fast. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I suppose if he, he perhaps became a bit bored with it all. Oh, a bit bored with it all. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, that's why he quite liked when, when you know, people would do new things with, with Re- stuff. revisiting his work and, yeah. and reinventing it, and yeah. doing new stuff and reinventing it because he was confident that it would survive. What he couldn't stand was uh, he very knew very well how to write pastiche, but what he didn't like was that his work would become pastiche in itself. Yeah, yeah. That's why he loved it when there were really good actors would sort of grab hold of it and give it a real good scruff around the neck, not, not, not in a perverse way, but absolutely take it. And, hmm. He, uh, he, he, I mean, he did say some nice things to him. I remember in, when I did Sweeney Todd in, you know, and I did The Judge and I made the orgasm really quite obvious, you know. I grabbed hold of my, my pants and they cut it out a little bit, but, you know, I made it obvious that I had come in my trousers, you know, really. And if, hence that music, and they cut away from it. But he, he loved the fact that I'd pushed it that far where... You, you went there. Yeah, I went there, like literally beating myself so that, you know, that's the only way I could orgasm. Um, uh, yeah, he, he loved it. And he would say, oh, I loved it when you pushed it that far, you know, make them feel a little bit embarrassed that the actor might have literally got out of control and might have actually literally come in, in your pants, come in his pants, you know, because <laughs> there's was, was a moment where he liked it. You pushed it that far in the believability that it could did, do you think they really were enjoying that? <laughs> Rather than pretending? He, he liked that. <laughs> well, never for a moment, Philip, did I think that the conversation was going to finish with uh, that, oh, particular, I that, so particular, that particular image of, uh, of Judge Turpin um, uh, reaching orgasm uh, yes. <laughs> during his big number. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's there, and it was why it was cut often. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not in the um, the Lansbury uh, televised production. It's, um, I think oh, they because, cut the entire number, don't they? Yeah, and it got cut once when I did it in England because I, I think they cut it because people thought it would be offensive. And I, you go, what? Come on. Yeah. Um, so it must have changed. Yeah, it did. It, it's, and it still gets cut. Doesn't yeah. make sense. Oh, really, of course. Gives us terrific psychology into yeah. that character. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Quas, thank you so much for uh, allowing us to to access your uh, tremendous brain and knowledge. And um, the next generation of performers are in very good hands and uh, they're very fortunate to have your guidance. Um, And they're teaching me. 
They're teaching me still, let me tell you. I'm reminded every day of how little I know. And, um, and the one thing you've got to be is curious. That's it. Yeah, I don't believe curiosity killed the cat at all. <laughs> Enhanced the cat. Yes, absolutely. Made him a cat. Made him a cat. Oh, God, my brain won't stop now. I'm going to go and keep thinking of things now. All right, Peter, thank you very much. It's lovely to chat to you. Philip Quast will be featured in the Adelaide Cabaret Festival program with Moments in the Woods, songs and stories of Sondheim. The show is directed by Mitchell Butel and also features Geraldine Turner, Queenie van der Zandt, Josie Lane and Mitchell Butel. Moments in the Woods, Songs and Stories of Sondheim is at Her Majesty's Theatre on Thursday, June 23rd at 7.30. Tickets on sale now, www.adelaidecabaretfestival.com. Thanks for joining us in this episode, and thank you to my guest, Philip Quast. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>